Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking about the importance of contraception as a part of women's sexual health. We'll be talking to Dr. Pellin Batur, Professor of OBGYN and Reproductive Biology at the Cleveland Clinic. She's in the Department of OBGYN and Women's Health Institute, Department of Subspecialty. She is the deputy editor for the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. Please enjoy this podcast. Today we have back with us Dr. Pellin Batur, back by popular demand, and also the fact that she's an expert in this area of contraception and uh, women's health. And we're, we're so happy to have her back. It, contraception is such a, a big discussion, covers so much ground. And, and just because of time and teaching, we want to focus our discussion today. But I, I'm going to ask Helen to, to first talk just a little bit about just contraception as, as a part of women's sexual health evaluation and, and how and really how important this is to have a discussion with each woman about this. Pellen, would you weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, so when you look at data of, you know, contraception and as a whole and how it impacts sexual health, and though, you know, we worry about contraceptives dropping testosterone and maybe negatively impacting sexual health, but the reality is for the vast majority of patients, a good contraceptive helps boost their sexual health. And it's because they don't have this looming worry about an unintended pregnancy that, you know, just, you know, one night of enjoying themselves is not going to change their career trajectory and their, you know, finances and their responsibilities and what they had mapped out for their life. So, I mean, sexuality is all about being in the moment and being worry-free, and it takes a huge worry off, especially the most effective contraceptive forms, takes a huge worry off their plate. So this is a critical part of the sexual health conversation. That's great. And I I know, you know, ACOG talks about just the, how it helps with the relationship with the patient, just finding out the patient's, you know, her values and her goals. And it's just a great way to, to get to know your patient as well. I think, too, uh, something you're very involved with that I think is, uh, is a tremendous work that a lot of people uh, don't have a lot of experience with. And I, if you would just talk a little bit about your, your clinic for women with uh, coexisting medical conditions, you know, most of our listeners have talked to the young, very healthy patients regarding, you know, contraception, but what about, how do we serve these women with these 
coexisting medical uh, conditions? Yeah, so it's been really exciting in the last few years. We've created this complex contraception clinic. We've added on to our family here several uh, complex family, you know, fellowship trained individuals who offer the full gamut of family planning services. But the two of us that really do the majority of the complex contraception work, my colleague does a lot of the difficult LARC insertions, removals, and I do a lot of the medically complex work because of my background. So a lot of patients that are referred to me would be, you know, from neurology, they have a seizure disorder, they have migraine with aura from our headache center, or they have cardiovascular risk factors, or they've had a transplant. So there's something complicating where it just gives people pause before they want to prescribe something. But of course, we have to remember that these individuals who have medical conditions oftentimes end up underutilizing contraceptives because people are afraid to counsel about it and afraid to prescribe. So the folks that we worry about the contraceptive side effects or risks, well, those are the women, if they have an unintended pregnancy, they're going to have the greatest risks or they're the ones on the teratogens. So it's these underserved individuals with these medical comorbidities they're the ones that probably need our help the most. Now, now I know that the government's put an app in our hands called the Medical Eligibility Criteria app. Do you think that's adequate for the provider out there trying to answer these questions to these people? I think that app is amazing. So that's your tax dollars at work. So we have two major guidelines, right? The medical eligibility criteria from the CDC that tells you in which medical conditions, which contraceptive is appropriate or not. And then there is the selective practice recommendations that actually gives you practical tips about, you know, you're using depo and they want to come in two weeks early because of vacation. Is it okay? Or they're bleeding? And what, what are you going to do about it? So it actually tells you more how to use the product. If you guys ever read the text on them, they're both about 80 pages in text each. And before the app was available, I read through those a few times, kind of just show you how uh, fun I am on the weekends. <laughs> so this basically, this app put everything at everybody's fingertips. So you don't have to scroll through 80 pages of text. You don't have to memorize any of this. And to be honest, I even after years and years of doing this, I still access the app. But, you know, I always say these are tools, not rules. And in my clinic, I am oftentimes using contraceptives and for medical indications when it's a category four, meaning it's not recommended. But that's typically I'm doing that because there is a more medical need. It's not just for contraceptive purposes. And after informed consent. But, you know, that is a very, very valuable tool because oftentimes you think, oh, the patient probably shouldn't be on this contraceptive. And you look, that's all driven by data, the app, and it says, oh, the data is reassuring and you can use it. It's a category one or a two. So when you look at the app, anything that's in a green is go and anything in a pink or red is, you know, click into it, read about the nuances because there might be better options. So it's Highly, highly recommend. I'm just going to put you on the spot here. People looking at this, they, they're talking to the patient and they still feel uncomfortable. There's not very many clinics like yours. Would it be fair to reach out to your to your office and say, could you do a virtual visit for my patient? Right. We do virtual visits whenever possible. I prefer to do an in-person visit First, just because with virtual visits, you know, billing is variable. You know, the, who covers them varies all the time. So I think if the patient can come in for the first visit, it ends up sometimes being more cost effective and less insurance hoops to jump through. But yes, we do do virtual visits. Okay. But, you know, every state has its 
as you know, there's billing requirements that you have to pay attention to. So depending on the provider and how many places they are licensed in, they may or may not be able to see new patients from certain states. But within yeah, the I, state, usually it's not a problem. It's just, it can be a problem because I know sometimes people don't get served because uh, us providers get concerned and afraid and unsure about what to do. So just looking for answers for them. No, absolutely. But they can definitely call our office to hear about options. Um, okay. Especially if they're an Ohio resident, um, we will do whatever we, especially nowadays with all these restrictive laws. I mean, if a woman has an unintended pregnancy, she may not be able to have options. What if she's on a teratogen and, you know, in her state, she's not allowed to have an abortion or it's after the heartbeat. So these women need access more than ever. And the one thing we did, and I, I think um, I would encourage everybody to do if they can in their institution is we started doing Saturday contraception clinics after the Ohio heartbeat law went into effect because no provider wants to refill a prescription on a patient they haven't seen in over a year and a half. But then of course, we know that we can prescribe these with Without a pelvic exam, without a pap test being up to date. So, you know, we started to do these access clinics and we're trying to educate our clinicians that no, you don't have to make sure that the mammogram and pap is up to date before you prescribe. But, you know, if you can hop on a quick virtual visit call and make sure their medical history hasn't changed, then that's enough to give them a year's supply of a contraceptive. So improving access in your clinics, however you can do it, I think is probably going to be the most help to women. Well, that's a great segue because the biggest part of my discussion today was going to be emergency contraception because you know, people are aware of it, but that's about it. I think it's underutilized, and especially in this daytime and hour of these restrictive laws that it's, it's really something to make people aware of. And so I was wondering if you would start a discussion on, you know, what is meant by emergency contraception? Yeah, and no, I'm so glad we're doing this because you're absolutely right. It's so underutilized. So when we say emergency contraception, it is a form of contraceptive after sex has occurred, but before a pregnancy test is positive. And just to be clear, you never have to delay any kind of emergency contraceptive because you're waiting for a pregnancy test. Because we know that, it, you know, especially with the oral medications, they are not teratogens. If they were pregnant, there's no harm to the fetus. So rule number one, you don't have to have patients running around for a pregnancy test so that they can just go ahead and take the emergency contraceptive. Really, it's these are not abortive. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. So if they know that they have a positive pregnancy test, none of these medications work as abortives in which they have to actually talk about other options with their clinician. But we have four different emergency contraception options, two pills and two IUDs. Please enumerate what those are and how they're used. So basically all of these emergency contraceptives can be used within five days of intercourse. Okay. And really for the oral medications, the earlier they use it, the better. I said four main ones, but we have actually five. The USB regimen, which is the combination of birth control pills. It's not even on my radar um, <laughs> just because it, it doesn't work as well. It's not very well tolerated. It's a combination of pills that everybody always forgets the recipe for, but but essentially you're getting 100 micrograms of ethanol estradiol and about half a milligram of levonorgestrel. So there's multiple different, you know, Portia, Trivora, Avian. So there's so many of those kind of pills available. The only thing I'd like to say about that is just good to know about it. It's not our first choice by any stretch, but let's say somebody is camping and they don't have anything but their pill pack or just have a local small pharmacy. All these pills are easily available at a small pharmacy that may not be carrying 
during emergency contraception. So you never know when you might need to pull it out of your back pocket. The two oral emergency contraceptives, there's one that's available, it's levonorgestrel based, it's plan B and all of the different generics. And there's a prescription one that's more effective and really should be our main go-to is uloprostol acetate under the brand name of Ella. I, I think that th- those are so important to know about. And I think that the, the college, the American College of OBGYNs have talked on a number of occasions about talking about this emergency uh, contraception at every gynecologic visit in, in, in the office. How do you feel about that? Oh, absolutely. And I can do a better job myself when I get wrapped up in other discussions, because I'll tell you, I mean, we sound like we're being paranoid, but I have to pull up this email that I just received just in the last two days. I mean, I'm part of the listserv for the American Society of Emergency Contraception. They're all about, you know, evidence-based discussions and access. And I just saw this public universities in Idaho issued guidance that staff and school-based clinics can't dispense or educate about emergency contraception in response to the laws restricting abortion. I mean, they're even starting to muzzle clinicians about talking about emergency contraception. So I can't emphasize to you how important for us to be aware and actually counsel and advance prescribe these pills, especially with levonorgestrel over-the-counter products, have the patients, if that's what they're going to rely on, have them pick it up so that in their time of need, whether it's in their purse or at their nightstand that they have it, because that we don't want them running around from pharmacy to pharmacy, because uh, a lot of uh, pharmacies will not stock the prescription uloprostol acetate. Now, both of these, remember, work by delaying ovulation. So that's one of the things sometimes pharmacies won't prescribe because they, they think they're, they're abortive, which they are not. They are classified under contraceptives. And what we do know about the pills is that they will work up until the LH surge. But once the LH surge has happened and the egg has been released, then not, no pill is going to work to prevent pregnancy. That's why time is of the essence. So you have to get the prescription because if you wait and then you have ovulation, then nothing is going to work. And the reason that the uloprostol acetate probably is more effective, studies show that it works closer to the LH peak. So once the, um, the over-the-counter stuff, once the LH surge starts to happen, then the rates of unintended pregnancy is the same as people taking placebo. But for the uloprostol acetate, it actually works right up before the LH peak. So you have a little bit more wiggle room, but of course, you don't know when your LH is surging or peaking. So you should just take it as soon as possible. Yeah, I think one particular situation that I wanted to bring up because of some of your work, actually, and that is the fact that it, this is very seldom brought up in emergency rooms, especially when people are handling, you know, people have been raped. And could you comment on that a moment? Because I don't know about our hospitals yet. I'm going to ask some of these guys whether they use it. Yeah, and we had to make sure that they was actually stocked in a, in our ERs and in our pharmacies that are attached to the hospitals in our system. So this was one of my passion projects years ago. I put together a survey for clinicians, and I sent it to some of the major teaching tertiary care centers uh, across the country in the East Coast, you know, like the Hopkins and Mass General and some places in Texas, but, you know, just, but the, you know, the major medical centers, the people who teach the stuff. And 
you know, Ella Yulipastal Asted had been out for several years. And despite that, knowledge was so poor. We looked at any frontline provider, you know, primary care, OBGYN, emergency room, and the knowledge was actually lowest amongst the emergency room staff. And there was something like less than 10% utilization, as low as 4% at that time. And that's where, you know, patients are going because we know all sex is not consensual, right? I mean, there's even something called stealthing where, you know, partners will take off a condom in the middle of sex and a partner may not realize it. So in in the era of all this stuff and the emergency, it just breaks my heart that you might go to an emergency room and that they would not give you what's the most effective option. But I think this is changing. I just don't think it's changing fast enough. Talk for a moment about predictors of, of failure that you know, if if you didn't use anything all month, you you've taught that there's a six percent risk of getting pregnant, and if you use this, it really certainly lowers that. But but what are some of the predictors that that this won't work? That this emergency contraceptive won't work? Yeah, so the six percent is a good reference point to think about. So the ulipristal acetate lowers that pregnancy risk to about 1.3 percent. Levonorgestrel is just a little over two percent. We, we'll touch on the IUDs in a little bit. Those are over 99 percent effective. It's like 0.1 to 0.3 percent pregnancy rate. But the, some of the predictors that these numbers uh, I'm quoting may not apply. Weight. Weight is a big one. So we know that as BMI increases, there's increased chance for oral emergency contraception failure, not for the IUDs, but for the oral agents. And so when you look, since the levonorgestrel products, the -the over-the-counter products are the weakest, the BMI also is elevating BMI impacts that the most. So any woman after a BMI of 25, you start to see increase in the unintended pregnancy rate. And by the time you are over 30, there's data to suggest that the intercourse is close to 6% again, meaning it's maybe not effective. Now, does that mean we, we should withhold these medications in women who are obese? Absolutely not. I mean, that's their last attempt at an unintended pregnancy, right? And also there are data from the WHO suggesting that even amongst you know all BMI classes that the unintended pregnancy was low with levonorgestrel products, but that data has some flaws. Now, for ulipristal acetate, weight still seems to impact, but women in the overweight category, uh, not so much, but when the BMI is in the obese category, you start to see a bump in the unintended pregnancy to a little over 2%. So time is of the essence, especially for the levonorgestrel products, the earlier the better, and body mass index makes a difference. And the third one that's been shown in studies to have an impact is subsequent intercourse. And that's really important for your counseling. Kind of makes sense, right? From the patient perspective, oh, I took this emergency contraceptive pill. So we're protected for the next few days. Let's go ahead and have unprotected sex. And that would be a big no-no because subsequent intercourse significantly bumps that predictor. It's a predictor of EC failure and it bumps up the unintended pregnancy rate to about 6%, again, back to the baseline. So they have to make sure that they protect. Because the way I think about it and the way I explain it, basically the oral pills are, if there's an egg and a sperm that have to go to the bar to meet for the magic to happen, right? So 
what what's basically the pills are doing is kind of locking up that egg in traffic so that it never gets to meet the sperm. And that sperm has a half-life of about five days. So eventually it gets bored and it walks out of the bar. But guess what? If another sperm comes in, I mean, you can only keep the egg occupied in traffic for so long. Eventually it's gonna, there's gonna be ovulation. It shows up at the bar. And if there's a new sperm waiting there, then again, the magic's gonna happen. So it's really not rocket science. You just have to make sure that you protect for the next five days minimum. Great analogy. What about drug interactions? You know, we always talk to people about certain medications are causing the uh, birth control pill to be ineffective. What, what about this with emergency contraception? Yeah. So this is an issue with anything hormonal. If there's a hepatic enzyme inducers, and we all know that long list of rifampins and all that stuff. So several anti-seizure medications, which are important. So those can decrease the effectiveness of both of the oral emergency contraceptives. Not that they shouldn't be taking it, but this is where if we can get the patient in within five days for an IUD, that would be preferred. So the first choice would, in that case would be a copper IUD, just because the levonorgestrel is not well studied in that situation. The second choice would be levonorgestrel because there's more data with that one and you would double the dose, although we have no idea whether that doubling the dose is effective or not. And uloprostol acetate, there's no recommendations on it because, you know, it can decrease the effectiveness and it's just not well studied. But really, whatever you got in your armamentarium, you can use it just because, you know, I I always say like, give them an oral emergency contraceptive and in the meantime, work on trying to get them in for that IUD. But there's no reason why you can't do both, especially if they're on teratogens. Oh, no. What if they use the EC, but they want to start birth control? How how do you handle that? Yeah, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So if they took the over-the-counter levonorgestrel-based stuff, there's no issue. So if you're going to, if they want to start a hormonal contraceptive, let's say a birth control pill, then you can start that immediately. Because remember, all um, combined hormonal contraceptives that even have estrogen or progestin only, they are all progestin dominant. And levonorgestrel products are a progestin, right? And so there's no reason why you can't start that immediately. Just keep in mind that the woman should continue to uh, either abstain or use a condom because all hormonal methods take seven days to become active in terms of preventing pregnancy. And this is a really important conversation to have because clearly if she had to take emergency contraceptive, this is a person who's at high risk for unintended pregnancy. So, you know, you should be having that conversation about contraception. Now, if they are going to start something non-hormonal, like a copper IUD, then there's no issue. The confusion comes in as if they took uloprostol acetate, because this product is, you know, levonorgestrel is a progestin, obviously. Uloprostol acetate is a selective progestin receptor modulator. It's kind of like a CIRM, but a sperm. Uh-huh, you know, <laughs> because it competes for the same receptor, there is concern that a the contraceptive sitting on that receptor may you know bump the uloprostol out, or the uloprostol may make the contraceptive less effective. So the recommendation is that if the patient took Ella, that they should wait five days after the Ella if they're going to start a hormonal contraceptive. So they need to use a condom or abstain for the five days after, then they can start the hormonal contraceptive. But remember, the hormonal contraceptive is going to take seven days to kick in. So anyway, you slice it or dice it. I'm telling that patient, please, please protect 
you know, or abstain for 14 days after this in that situation. Now, let's say they, they come in and they want a depot shot or an IUD. And this is where the guidelines have a little bit of flexibility and give you judgment. And this is all, by the way, part of that app. So if you look into that app, all the stuff that I'm telling you, you can quickly access it when you're busy in clinic. So they're here if you, you know, you can't be certain that they're not pregnant and you're not sure what to do. And they, let's say they took uliprostol acetate, then you use your judgment. If you're worried that that person's never going to come back for that follow-up appointment after five days, then just go ahead and give them the contraceptive because then the risk of an unintended pregnancy is greater if they're not going to adhere to your follow-up. But if you're pretty confident that they're willing to come in, you can get them on a nurse schedule for their depot shot in five days and they're pretty reliable, then you just wait the five days and then have them come. I think a big thing is you you spoke about it a little bit just a few minutes ago, but barriers. Can you talk about the various barriers we find? Because, you know, it's this works just as long as we get at the people and, and what's in the way of us doing that? Oh my gosh, where do we begin? Right. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, so not everybody can get in to see you or talk to you, you know, when they've had an oops moment, right? The uloprostol acetate and all the IUDs, they require a clinician for a prescription or procedure. Let's not even get started about same day, you know, LARC uh, that's just fraught with issues in the U.S. healthcare system because we're afraid that insurance isn't going to cover. And and then even stocking in pharmacies has been shown to be low. There was a 2017 study that showed that only 10% of pharmacies had uloprostol acetate in stock. So in these times more than ever, perhaps, you know, reaching out to some of your local pharmacies that you use a lot and just making sure that they are stocking. Because, you know, frankly, if we're ordering it, they're most likely going to stock it. But if we're forgetting to order it then or prescribe it, then they're going to say, I'm going to need to order that for you. And it's going to wait 24 hours. So there's a lot of barriers, not to mention the education. And we're all busy in clinics. So we have to really put this top of mind or figure out workflows where you know, we can have our checking in uh, staff ask about need, but we have to get creative because multiple, multiple barriers. And, you know, the problem is, you know, you think, oh, levonorgestrel is, uh, you know, over the counter now, but it really at a population level hasn't made a dent in the unintended pregnancy rate. Most of the data show that it really hasn't made a big difference. And so whether it's because it's being not used properly, the expense, I mean, it's expensive to buy those. Um, mm. Sometimes they, because of the expense, they're worried about it being um, stolen. They have them in locked boxes behind the pharmacy counter, you know, so lots and lots of barriers. That's why it's it's really on us to help these women out. I thank you for this very in-depth discussion. I, I really appreciate one last thing that I thought came out in the last two years and kind of like came out with a splash, but has died down again. And that is placement of IUDs at the time of delivery. What do you think of that? Yeah. You know, we know expulsion rate is right. Um, higher, right? right? But so really it's just all about talking to the patient. It's that same weighing of the pros and cons in your mind. If you think they're going to come back and for the postpartum visit or, you know, they're going to keep their visits and keep their scheduled appointments for the IUD. But the problem is we do know that many individuals start having sex, even though they are told right. not to have sex. And many individuals, you can set them up for an IUD, but they end up missing the visit or canceling the visit. Um, so this is a, you know, conversation to have 
with the individual patient. But anytime, that's just the rule of thumb with contraceptives. Anytime you put hurdles and delay, studies show that the unintended pregnancy rate is higher. Well, again, thank you. And any pearls before we leave for the learners regarding contraception in general or any of these subjects we've talked about? I do want to make sure we spend some time talking about the IUD as well for emergency contraception. That is our most effective. The copper IUD, there are data that it's good. In some countries, they have used it as emergency contraceptive even a month out after unintended pregnancy. But there there are data for 10 days out from, but the official guidelines is five days. It's uh, the mechanism of action for the IUD, the copper IUD, there may be a little bit of a post-fertilization effect. It's probably why it's more effective. So that is something just to be aware of. Um, people will try to cloud the picture of endometrial effects and all this for, with the uh, oral emergency contraceptives. There is For the oral emergency contraceptives, there's no effect of endometrium. It really is the, you know, before fertilization, delay of ovulation, where the mechanism of action is. For the IUDs, there's probably some post-fertilization effects. And the Dr. Turok and colleagues in the New England Journal, I'm sure that learners are aware, published the non-inferiority study looking at, they used Lilettas, but essentially the same thing as a Mirena, the 52 milligram IUD. It was similarly effective. So I think it's nice to know that we have both of the IUD options now available to be used within five days of intercourse. And they are the most effective. So somebody who really wants to prevent prevent pregnancy, and we know that the long-term, at a year, unintended pregnancy is lower in people who use IUDs for their emergency contraception, not just because it's more effective, but also you give them a highly effective contraceptive that they can go home with, as opposed to somebody who, you know, clearly needed a better option for them if they were just having to need take pills all the time. That's fantastic. Well, again, thank you. And we were very grateful for your time. And thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. You bet. And and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.